Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. This is a big day for us, as it's our very first episode of Crime Time Nerds. Today, we're going to discuss a Vermont case that really shook a community. This is the kidnapping and subsequent murder of beloved local teacher, Melissa Jenkins. While Vermont may seem like the perfect picturesque New England state, it does have its own share of darkness that hides among our foliage here. It's a weird and strange state, but a wonderful one all at the same time. Oftentimes, it will feel like time just kind of stopped here around the 1800s, and it never really moved forward from there. It's true. We joke all the time that Vermont never really made it out into the modern era. We still sometimes resort to old school methods to get things done. I've always thought it was so strange that Vermont can have leaf peeping and a quaint bed and breakfast in one hand, and yet in the other have some awful crimes and murders. You know, it's true. I I've always felt the same way. Vermont is so beautiful, but it does have its own fair share of local secrets and its own darkness here among its sweet New England towns. It also happens to have some interesting weird tales as well. I just learned that Vermont happens to have its very own Egyptian mummy. It's not just leaves and murders here, but our own home little state also has some world history thrown in there for fun. How this all started was, I was looking into weird, interesting facts about Vermont for our first episode, and I happened to come across the story about an Egyptian mummy, and I fell into a rabbit hole that is a weird Google search history, my little nerdling friends. (laughs) Have you ever heard of the, the mummy that lives here, Ash? Not at all. I had no idea. So was this one that was just in a museum or something? See, that's the best part about this. The mummy is not in a museum like you would think. We only have some really small local museums and one large museum that's called the Shelburne Museum. So mummies are are not a common thing here in Vermont, just as a as a little peek into our little culture here. So when I found this, I thought the story was pretty crazy and I had to share this. It all starts back in 1883 BC that there was an Egyptian prince whose name was Amun Her Kapesh Eth, who died as an infant. I apologize because I probably butchered that name. Amun was the infant son of Senwoset III, who was a king of Egypt with his wife Hawthorn Hothby. Now, I know you're trying to figure out what any of this has to do with Vermont, but hold on to your horses because here's where the Green Mountains come in. So we fast forward thousands of years later to the year 1866, when a local junk dealer named Henry Sheldon purchased the mummy from a New York antiques dealer. Sheldon was said to have purchased the mummy and he put it on display in his house up until he died in 1907. I have to wonder if the town of Sheldon is named for Henry Sheldon, the antiques dealer here, because it's not a super common name, It's you know, for a town. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, this must be the guy that the town is named for. So unfortunately, Vermont weather isn't much like the dry weather of Egypt. So it didn't lend itself to helping preserve the mummy over the years. The mummy, unfortunately, was exposed to heat, cold, Damp conditions, as we know, for those of us living here in Vermont, that's pretty much a norm. 
these conditions increased the mummy's decomposing. Eventually, the mummy was just left in an attic and would have remained there if not for the efforts of George W. Mead, who happened to be a Sheldon Museum trustee. Mead didn't like the idea that this young boy was being left to decompose away in an attic somewhere and just being forgotten to time, so he decided that the mummy boy deserved to have a proper burial. Mead actually had a tombstone created and had the mummy cremated and buried on his own family plot, which is really sweet that he gave this child a burial, regardless of it not being this child's culture. I think Mead's idea behind it was very sweet. So, nerdlings, if you happen to be in Vermont and you're going to go to Middlebury, you can actually visit the gravesite of an Egyptian prince. This is also my very not-so-subtle way of telling you, Ash, that you and I, as soon as quarantine is done, are going on an adventure to Middlebury so we can go look at the gravesite of this Egyptian mummy. I definitely agree. That is so awesome. We will definitely be making the trip because not only do I love true crime, I'm also a history nerd. And we can thank dad for that. It's true. I love talking history and strange legends with your dad. He's usually almost always down. And I bet we could easily convince him to go on this adventure with us just to go look for the grave of an Egyptian prince. I had to share this with you guys because I thought the story was so weird and cool and kind of sweet in its own way. And it seemed like a nice, happy story to share before we get heading towards the darkness that is today's case. Yeah, this case is a dark one for sure. It's time for us to get heading down that dark road of true crime and venture into the case of Melissa Jenkins. Man, I hate when we leave the light and happy place and we head off towards the dark path (laughs) every time. All right, Ash, looks like it is time for you to lead us down into that dark road. All right. So this case is very close to home for us. We live and have grown up in Vermont, so murders are not a common occurrence here in our pretty little state. We have a fairly low crime rate, and so when a murder does occur here, it really has an impact on our local communities. Vermont is a rural state, and it is the quintessential essence of what you would expect in a quaint New England state. St. Johnsbury, Vermont was no exception to that rule until the day of March 25th, 2012, when everything changed with the murder of Melissa Jenkins. Melissa Jenkins was a 32-year-old science teacher at St. Johnsbury Academy. Not only was she a science teacher, she was also a basketball coach. And on top of that, she was also a part-time waitress at the Creamery Restaurant in Danville, Vermont. She was a single mother to a two-year-old boy. And let's not forget that she was also working towards her master's degree, which this woman was a superhero. She was loved by her students and community. She was a typical Vermonter. She worked hard. She was an upstanding member of the community. She was very involved in her local community. Most of all, Melissa was like a lot of us Vermonters. She was trusting and kind. Like we said, Vermont is a little bit like going back in time. Folks are still very neighborly and we still help one another out and look out for each other, even if we don't know them. And Melissa was no exception to this belief. On March 25th, 2012, Melissa Jenkins received a phone call from Alan Prue, who happened to be a former acquaintance. He was stating that his car had broken down and was asking if she can help him and his wife, Patricia, out. Melissa called her friend to let him know she had received an interesting call from the couple that used to plow her driveway. Melissa had called her friend because she just wanted to let someone know what and where she was going. She must have had a bad feeling about this from the start. So trust your gut, nerdlings. That's so true. Yeah. When you have that bad feeling, just just trust your instincts. Definitely. I totally agree. So about two hours later, her friend becomes a little concerned because he hasn't been able to get in touch with Melissa. So he decides to go check on her, which is when he found her SUV on the side of the road still running. And in rural Vermont, I mean, 
who would leave their SUV running on the side of the road when there's no other things around. Definitely not good. And inside the SUV was Melissa's two-year-old son sleeping in the vehicle. Not only was her small child left alone, but he also found one of Melissa's shoes nearby and no sign of Melissa. And during the search of the crime scene, police did find a hat that did not belong to Melissa. And police were immediately brought in and the search for Melissa began. Melissa's son, who was only two years old, witnessed part of the crime. Authorities had talked to the boy, and I'm sure this was a social worker that had talked yeah, to him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. The boy had made the motion of grabbing his neck and saying that mommy cried, which is, oh. that just makes my heart crack into pieces. After searching for Melissa on March 26, her body was found in the Connecticut River, naked, covered in branches. She had concrete weights attached to her wrist and her ankles. I think that the fact that her two-year-old son witnessed the crime is one of the hardest parts of this case. The trauma alone that he must have gone through, it's just gut-wrenching. No child should ever, ever witness their parents' murder. Just never. And it's so awful that this poor little boy lost his mom to such a horrific crime. It kills me. After police find Melissa's body, they end up contacting her phone provider in order to try and get access to her call log records. When they receive them, they're able to find an incoming call that came in at 8.35 on the night of her disappearance. Police find out that this phone that was used in the phone call was an actual track phone, also known as a burner phone. Unfortunately, they can't access much information from it. But what they were able to find out was that the phone was purchased about a month prior in Littleton, New Hampshire. Just as a side, Littleton, New Hampshire isn't that far from St. Johnsbury. Just kind of some context here. New Hampshire and Vermont share a border. If you're in St. Johnsbury, it's maybe a 30-minute drive, if that. So while police have narrowed down this information as to where the phone came from, they were actually able to contact the store the phone was purchased from in an order to try and obtain some surveillance video, which would be from the time period that the phone was purchased in hopes of trying to find who the mystery assailant was. One video in particular caught their attention as it had a blonde woman who happened to purchase a track phone. This is pretty important because it's 2012, so track phones weren't really a common thing. We were all on smartphones by that point, so not a normal type of purchase in this day and age. With the video and information they had, the Vermont police reach out to the FBI in hopes of being able to find out who this mystery shopper and purchaser of track phones in 2012 was. While police are waiting for the results from the FBI, they happen to search Melissa's home in hopes of finding more information about the crime. In searching Melissa's house, police are able to find a business card that was sitting on her kitchen counter. That card was for Alan and his wife, Patricia Prue's snowplow business. Police were able to look into it and started to kind of narrow down some some potential witnesses or suspects that they wanted to talk to. While having some unanswered questions, such as why did Melissa take out this business card and leave it on her kitchen counter, was this something she was doing as a way of just letting people know where she had gone? Remember, she made a phone call to her friend earlier that night to let them know where she was going to be because she was concerned. So Melissa seems like she was a fairly cautious person. And leaving the business card doesn't seem, it seems like she had an intention with that. You know, maybe she was looking up their phone number to call them back. So there's a couple of unanswered questions with why she had taken out that business card and left it on the counter. Once the police get the business card, they're able to look into the proofs and to kind of see if there is any police record of the two, any, any red flags that they may have had. Unfortunately, everything seems to be pretty clean on that part. Not long after searching Melissa's house, the police 
are surprised when, lo and behold, the Prues of all people happen to show up right there at the police station, and they want to report a complaint about having some identity theft. Apparently, the two came in to report some suspicious activity on their account. The detective decides to take advantage of this and interviews them about their issue and kind of moves the conversation over to being a little bit more about Melissa, just to see if they had any input, seeing as this was a couple that the police were already looking into to see if they had any relation to the crime that happened to Melissa. The detective notices that the Prues are acting very nervous and concerned with the fact that this crime happened in their small hometown. This isn't surprising in and of itself. Murders aren't common in Vermont. Like we've said, it's not an everyday kind of occurrence. So the idea that they were affected by it, isn't that weird? It's not necessarily suspicious in and of itself. But what was interesting is that In the interview, the Prus never actually mentioned that they had any car troubles that night or that they had even called Melissa. Remember, the police already know they called Melissa because of her friend's statement. They also have Melissa's phone records so that they know she did receive a phone call and she told her friend that she was going to help the snowplow truck driver who had been her regular snowplow person for a significant amount of time. What's interesting is that instead during the interview, the Proust say they were asleep that night that Melissa would have been murdered. And the police immediately knew this was false as they knew, like I said, Melissa had been contacted by them per the statement given by Melissa's friend. Alan did happen to mention, though, that before bed, he had gone out and had actually gone to a fast food restaurant that evening. This was a really big piece for the police. The police were then able to obtain the surveillance footage from that restaurant. And shockingly, they noticed a very similar hat that Alan was wearing to maybe one that was found at the crime scene. Police are now sure at this point in time that the Prues are either responsible for Melissa's death or know more than what they are saying. Having this knowledge, the police are able to invite Alan and Patricia down to the station so that they can be interviewed about the identity theft allegations. The detectives separately interview the couple and the police tell Alan he is being looked at for Melissa's death. Immediately, Alan's demeanor completely changes. So he goes from being calm and collected to being demanding to know why, suspicious, all of the typical behaviors of someone who is guilty. The evidence is brought to Alan Prue and he instantly breaks down. He admits that his wife and him were wanting to experiment in the bedroom and this experimentation ended up taking a turn for the worse. He and his wife had actually both been attracted to Melissa over the years, pretty much ever since they had started working for her. Oftentimes, Alan's wife would come with him on his snowplow drives. So she was very familiar with Melissa and also had taken an interest. Alan had said that the initial plan was that they would call Melissa and tell her that their car had broken down. And when they convinced Melissa to come and pick them up, that was where they were going to try and and discuss with her the option of maybe having a threesome with them. That's when things take a turn for the worse because Melissa didn't bite. When Melissa was taken out of her home, you can assume that when she figured out that this had been a ruse from the start, everything kind of exploded on the prus. So Alan's reaction was that he would start to strangle her. The couple realized that Melissa's two-year-old son was in the back of the car still. So they hadn't realized when Melissa came to pick them up that she had brought her child, which makes total sense that she would have. Alan 
in his rage, strangled her to the point of unconsciousness. And he and Patricia actually put her in the back of their car. When she was in the back of their car, so away from her two-year-old son, Patricia then continued to strangle Melissa until she was dead. The police asked Alan to show them the crime scene where the couple dumped Melissa's body, and he did agree to take them there. At the crime scene, Alan fully broke down. He confesses to the police. They were able to record it. And so Alan pointed them to the direction of where he had thrown that burner phone. And luckily later on, divers were able to retrieve that phone. Patricia denied being involved at all with the murder of Melissa, even though she was denying that she had anything to do with it. Later on that evening, both Prues were charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Here's where it gets crazy. So while on trial, the couples individually changed their story. Alan claimed that Patricia did it all and he was merely a bystander. He claimed that Patricia was jealous of his liking of Melissa. Patricia, in her rage, she murders Melissa. Luckily, police did have that tape confession from Alan from earlier before. So it wasn't anything that he could change his story on because he'd already confessed to the crimes on recording. Patricia gets involved in all of this and also starts to claim that she had no part and that it was all Alan's doing. And even later on into the trial, tries to claim insanity for her actions when she realizes that it's it's she's not going to get any further with claiming that she had no part in the murder. So the police actually call her bluff. And after completing a psych test, a psychologist that was brought in said that Patricia was sane and absolutely could stand in court. Patricia's laptop was later searched and they found searches about how to kidnap a girl and not get caught, which tells you everything you need to know about these two monsters. Basically, these two absolutely were looking into how to abduct a woman and not get caught, obviously, from their search. But not only that, they intentionally wanted to bring in somebody unwilling. Everything about what they did says that they knew that Melissa would not go along with their plan. And I think that the thing that set them off or changed everything was the fact that Melissa brought her two-year-old son with her that night. I don't think the two had planned on that. So their fantasy was kind of broken by that moment of her bringing a child to this. Yeah, definitely. I don't think they ever imagined that she would bring him along, which is crazy because you're a single mother. Right. Obviously, you have to bring your two-year-old everywhere you go. But Absolutely. And they should have known that. They'd worked for her for years. So it's, it's weird that they were so caught up in the sexual fantasy that they had about getting Melissa and convincing her to come out that night and that they were going to have this, this moment with her that they really didn't think about. One, the fact that they were literally going planning to assault and rape a woman. And two, this woman had a child. What else was she going to do that night? It's crazy that these two monsters just thought that they could do whatever they wanted with her. Yeah. Awful, awful humans. Awful. You're actually going to find out what happens in this next segment. So we do have some additional information that we wanted to mention that we didn't mention earlier in the episode. So first of all, we didn't mention the names of her family and friends intentionally out of respect for her family's privacy. Also, we wanted to kind of note that Littleton, New Hampshire is only 23 minutes away from St. Johnsbury. Just so you kind of have a perspective on it. I know Nat had mentioned that earlier, but we're just Mm going to mention it again. Also, in an interview with police, one 
one of Melissa's friends actually told them that she felt uncomfortable around Alan Prue as he had asked her out multiple times. It was one of the main reasons she had chosen to stop using him as her regular plow guy for the winter. He had also shown up at her house earlier that year pleading for his job back while he was intoxicated. So sketchy. Yeah, that just I just got goosebumps. I ugh, that's awful mm-hmm. to put someone in that position. I just I feel so bad for Melissa. She tried to do all of this the right way. She was really nice. And these two just totally took advantage of her kindness. It's disgusting. Yeah, and it's awful. It's almost as if you have to watch out for yourself nowadays. You cannot be too mm-hmm. nice to people because so many people take it the wrong way, which is very oh, unfortunate. Absolutely. So the message from this episode, guys, is, uh, yeah, nerdlings, trust your instincts. Don't be nice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll save your life. <laughs> All right. So another thing to mention was that Patricia Prue was bisexual and she had wanted to explore her sexuality more with Alan. So the Prues mm-hmm. had been known to surf adult websites and had been involved with threesomes with other women previously. Um, I'm assuming they all gave consent because we haven't heard anything Otherwise. else about the Prues. I would assume so. And I think that what my total couch surfer psychology moment here is, is that these two were playing off of each other's own fantasies. So I'm not sure which one was the ringleader in it, but obviously having a normal consensual threesome, whatever, to your bedroom, I don't care. Obviously that wasn't doing it for them anymore. And somehow this fantasy switched and became a very toxic, dark fantasy that the two were started to play in. Yeah. And it was said that the two had fantasies about kidnapping a woman and having an, a sexual encounter with her. So, so they were planning on raping somebody definitely. is the answer here. Yep. Yeah. So with all that being said, Patricia was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after pleading guilty to aggravated attempted murder and kidnapping as well as conspiracy to commit murder. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Prue is serving life in prison for attempted kidnapping and is also serving a sentence of 50 years to life for first degree murder, as well as a five year sentence for conspiracy to commit murder. Also good. Yes. <laughs> you guys gladly rotten there. My yeah, God. 100%. These are trash humans right here. So something kind of a little uplifting after all of that is <sighs> one year after Melissa's murder, the school that she taught at and Melissa's students actually put up signs and posters saying love wins. Amen to that. I guys. know. That is just so sweet. And I think I feel like Melissa, who is such a wonderful human being, such a strong woman, such an uh, just someone that we should all admire. I feel like that's how she would have she would have felt too. love will always win. Definitely. Definitely. So going on to a few things that we were thinking with this case, not only did these monsters ruin Melissa's family and son's life, they took away many students, beloved teacher. I mean, I still had contact with my third grade teacher when I was a senior in high school. The students who she was closest with will probably never forget the moment they found out that she was missing. She had so much going for her. These two just snatched it away. It's just so awful. It really is. I agree wholeheartedly. I know my grade school teachers meant the world to me. And not to mention that she had a sweet little baby who's never going to grow up to see his mom again. This case has always gotten to me. I used to go camping as a college kid in this area every weekend. It was a bunch of us girls just hanging out there. And it's like I said, like we said, it's a very small town in New England. You don't imagine anything bad happening really anywhere here. I just feel so awful for Melissa and her 
family and her loved ones. She just sounded like this amazing person. And to have all of that just taken away because two people can't control themselves and decided that their fantasy was more important than somebody's life is is unreal to me. It's just crazy that she had this misfortune of attracting these two psychos and they never saw her as a person at all. They looked at her as purely an object. She was just the thing that they wanted to play out their sick fantasy. And it, it doesn't feel right. None of this feels right. Melissa did the right thing that night, did the kind thing. You know, she did what we all would like to do. Go and help a neighbor out, be a good person, take care of each other. And unfortunately, she paid with her life for being a good person. The only thing that I can say in all of this is that I personally am just really glad that her family was able to get justice. They were able to see the proofs put behind bars. I know it doesn't bring Melissa back, but hopefully it gives them some form of closure. And from the bottom of our hearts, you know, we were definitely feeling this this case with, with them and our hearts go out to them. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. I am just so glad that those two awful, awful humans are just in prison, hopefully having an awful time. Yeah, you know, they're just something people in life who don't deserve freedom. And those two definitely fit that, fit yep. that MO, if you will. Yep. And on that note, that's it for this episode. Until then, nerdlings, thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review over at iTunes or on your normal podcast provider. You can also check out our Instagram at CrimetimeNerds or visit our website at CrimetimeNerds.com where we share resources for our episodes each week. See you next time, nerdlings!